How many of you hate looking in the mirror, whether that be early in the morning or late day? You would rather do what you have to do to make yourself presentable and move on. You make a quick check and then off to the races you go. And sometimes you simply shrug your shoulders and say, well, this is as good as it gets. Love it or leave me. You know the kind of attitude that we really are not that happy with ourselves, but because one, we cannot do anything about it, or two, we don't really want to try to give the effort to do anything to help fix it. I would say if you are not a millennial, you are probably more in this camp. You were not raised to constantly be looking at yourself on a screen. Now, for those of you who are born with a cell phone in hand and your upbringing at birth has been from a screen, or at least more than half of your life has been, you probably are more familiar with the image of yourself than anyone else. With selfies now being a dictionary term in any language, you really do know how you look every hour of the day. And that is simply because of the era and time in which we live. While having a healthy view of ourself is good, focusing on ourselves 24-7 is not. And where a day and age beckons for us to check on how many likes we get every few minutes or with each new post that we have created, it leaves many with the absence of acceptance or even giving a false sense of rejection. While society has been moving at a rapid rate of making you the number one image you look at or are concerned about, that also means that it's making life all about me. And that also makes room for very little else. Well, God's view on how we think about ourselves has not ever changed. It would be wise for us to take a careful inventory probably more often than we check Facebook to ensure that we are not falling into the snare of the enemy and allowing ourselves to be more important than God or anyone else. I know none of us would admit that, nor do we even realize it at times. I do believe we are falling into a very slippery slope that has plagued Christians for many years. Self-centeredness can be a sin that can go unnoticed for years, if not decades, before someone says to us, hey, did you know that you seem to always have yourself on your mind? This usually doesn't come from your yes people that are in your life either. This often comes from that friend or spiritual mentor who loves you way too much to leave you that way but says it to help you recognize and not to condemn you. That person sees when the focus is always on you. It oftentimes allows you to miss out on the greatest part of your Christian walk. When taken gently by the hand, you show them that they are missing out on the greatest gift that God has ever given us, and that is himself. Now, for those of you who are saying, I don't think about myself all the time. I'm always doing for everyone else. Who has the time for that anyways? I want to pose a question for you that has come up many times in my teachings that we really do wrestle with this self-seeking and prideful issue. Think about it this way. Maybe you're trying to serve God where God has called you. Maybe you are knee deep in ministry and you really are trying to focus on others by serving them. But here's where it can get a little twisted. While you're doing all these great things, you might get caught up in the thoughts like this. God, am I doing this right? Why can't I seem to overcome my fear? What do you want me to do next? Why am I always offended? Why do my feelings get hurt so often? When will you take me to the next level? Why can't I get a breakthrough? When will I be healed? When will my ministry grow? And when will I see some results of all my labor? Any of those questions starting to sound familiar? I know I've heard that broken record in my head more than once. 
honestly, more times than I would like to admit. Do you remember the story when the disciples were arguing with each other about who was the greatest among them? It's the one we should read from time to time to do our own heart check to see if this is our focus or is God our attention. If you haven't read it in a while, I'd like to do that for you here today. It's found in Luke 9, verse 46 through 48. It says, an argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he is the least among you. All is the great one. God makes it pretty clear that those who are first will be last and those of you who are last will be first. So if God is telling you that we should consider those less fortunate than us or even those who are not according to our standards, some part of importance, God would beg for you to differ. We can read all about it just a little further down in Luke 22, 24. It says the same thing about this argument of who was the best in Jesus' mind. He sets them straight pretty quickly here again. It reads, And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is the king of kings. Yet he says very clearly that he has come to serve, not to be served. Can you imagine a person in his authority serving others? Think about our modern day leaders, our presidents, our prime ministers, or even our kings and queens. Whether you like them or not, could you imagine Donald Trump coming into your home to help you and serve you? To say, what can I do for you? What do you need? What if he offered to mop your floors, wash your car, clean up after your family? What would your response be? Sure, we see this kind of activity at times when politicians are campaigning, but how about when they get into office in which they're trying to obtain? When they finally reach their place of honor, they're the ones being served 24-7. Think about Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace. I would assume that other people are serving her and not the other way around. There are over 1,200 staff members to be exact. Now think about Jesus, the one that should never lift a finger simply because of who he is, who he has always been, and who he always will be. If he came to earth in the magnitude of his honor, the whole world would flip upside down to accommodate him. 1,200 servants would be a pittance of how many people should serve him. Doesn't it say that every knee will bow when he returns? Now, that does not say every follower or believer who knows or even thinks that he is God. No, it says that every single knee will bow and fall on their face to honor him. Yes, even those who hate him. Romans 14, 11 reminds us of this, and everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. Listen to Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. It says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put aside your differences and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves along the way. 
enough to lend a helping hand. Verse five, think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless life, obedient, and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Verse 9, because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever, so that all created things in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. God says, look how Christ lived while here on earth. I want you to live that way. Forget about yourself and serve, but serve with a heart of gladness, not of one of bitterness or resentment. It reminds me how God talks about tithing in Malachi. He said, give with a joyful heart. It's an ordinary language that means to be a hilarious giver. You know, God doesn't need our money and he doesn't want us giving out of a stingy heart. God says, give to me with gladness. I believe he says the same about serving. Don't do it out of a duty. Do it out of love. Could you imagine for a moment if when Jesus came to earth, his attitude toward all those he met were on contempt because his father made him do it? I doubt that he would have made any real connection or genuine relationships. We all know how we feel when someone does something out of duty instead of love. It's not heartfelt, and that's pressed upon us. We just feel that this was something that had to be done, and they really didn't want to do it anyways. Jesus did not come to save us out of a duty. He came out of his love for both his father and us. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means there was nothing we have ever done nor will do to deserve his sacrificial love for us and that he came solely to serve and to save the lost. Isn't that great news that you and I don't have to do a thing to receive all of his love? God says, just allow me to give you my son. And if you will receive that love, you will spend eternity with me. Hey, that's great news, friends. It takes all the pressure off of us. And in return, he asks if we will just live and love like Jesus did. Not making something out of ourselves, just serving to be like Jesus. God asks us to walk with him daily to learn what he wants to give us. And that is humility and selflessness. It's a joyful heart and a kindred spirit. Our world could change in a moment in time if we would all simply just live for one another instead of for number one. And without any ulterior motives, it would change everything in an instant. Think about that for a moment. How would your personal world change if all day long, no matter what you did, was with the thought of other people instead of yourself? What does all this look like in real life? Well, let's be practical here and start our first ministry field, home. What if you woke up every morning to serve those God has given you? 
Now, before you get excited, mom, and say, all I do is for everyone else in my home, and I might add with rarely anything in return, what if your attitude was to serve because that is what Christ has called you to do? Serve your husband in a way that is not begrudgingly, loving him to honor and make him the place of authority in which God has placed him, even if he doesn't deserve it. Remember what I just read in Romans. God saved us while we were still yet sinners. God may be asking the same from you. What if you work in a factory and think, all I do are put parts together? Would you be willing to put those parts together as a servant making a quality piece of equipment that will be a blessing to someone? Maybe you are on the line at Honda. Could you pray over your parts that whomever drives this vehicle that God would look after them and protect them on the road? If you install the axle or tie rods or the tires, could you pray that those tires and parts would always be solid and would carry these families that own it to the safety where they may be traveling to? Could you go to work and look for opportunity to say, what can I do to help you? How can I serve in an area that needs attention? Have you been waiting for a raise or promotion? Could it be that you've been vying for the top position and yet you can't seem to make any headway? Could it be that you're not willing to be last before you are ever made first? God loves a servant's heart, one that is pure, and without ulterior motive. Ask God to show you where you can serve and how. I guarantee you he will make plenty of opportunity for you to do just that. I recently had a lady tell me that she was having a really hard time hearing from God. She reads the word, goes to church, and strives to keep peace in her life and sin out. She has always been an encouragement to me and many others because of a simple sinning of scriptures that she feels like the Lord has given to her to share. She seemed to be doing it all right. But for her, she felt as though something was off. The one thing that kept coming back to me was to ask her one simple question. And it was this. What's the last thing God has told you to do and you haven't done it? She kind of looked at me with a confused stare, but I knew she knew. She wrestled around with a few things and then she said it. God had told her to get healthy, to lose some weight that she had been struggling with and were causing for a lot of extra health problems. She knew that she had not followed through on a simple thing, yet chose not to be obedient. You see, even something as simple as losing weight could be your disobedience to God. If God tells you to do something, then you must do it, even if you don't want to. So many times we choose to go our own way and think God won't notice because we are doing all this great other stuff for him. This woman knew after I had posed the question that she could very well be frustrated and stuck because she didn't do what God had asked of her. How many times do we do this and we think we have another plan and our way is best? Or that this isn't such a big deal and I'm sure God won't care if I don't do this. Besides, I'm the only one who pays for it anyways. Well, our way is never the best way. Only God's is. But as long as we focus on what we want and how we want it, then God is sometimes stopped by doing the very things that we are praying for. Many times our anxiousness is because we are always in a constant state of worry of whether we are getting things right or not. God says that there is no condemnation in him, meaning he's not going to be mad at us when we do or don't get it right. But what he would rather us do is to be focused on him and not ourselves. We have to remember that we are only made right through his blood. We will never be made right or less righteous by doing anything good or bad. It's all by his saving grace. 
Accepting his righteousness as a free and gracious gift is our part in the matter. I know I strive for years to do whatever I thought God wanted me to. Now, at first, someone might say, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yes, we are to live for Christ to the best of our ability. Let me say it again and listen to the operative word here. I strived to do what I thought God wanted me to do. Three different times I referenced myself, me and I. There was only one mention of God. Three to one, odds are not a good stat. Maybe a better question is, Lord, what is your will for my life? That's at least two to one. He is made more important in that statement. When we keep God at the forefront of our thoughts and actions, we will stay in balance of what God has for us. Kind of makes me think about the song that Willie Nelson wrote about always being on my mind. He sings about, I didn't love you quite as often as I should have. I didn't treat you as good as I should. I made you feel second best. And I didn't hold you in those lonely times and all the little things I should have done. He didn't do. Now, maybe that's a silly analogy, but I think it's true about our own lives. We talk in a constant circle about what we should do or what I could do. But how often do we just do it and not worry about the recognition received? How about just doing something because God said to? Or maybe because you just want to bless him with nothing in return. How about just doing it to be like Christ? I have to wonder what he must have felt on Palm Sunday. In all of his humility, I can almost see his unassuming face with all the fanfare that the Jewish people would give him. But more than receiving the adoration, I have to wonder if he was not more consumed with what was going to happen the following Friday and how he was writing more to his death to save these people who knew no different than he did for the honored position on the back of a donkey that day. Jesus showed the greatest example of love and servanthood when he was at the Last Supper with his disciples. He knew what was about to take place. And although his crucifixion was staring him in the face, he took the time to show just what it was like to be a servant after all. He washed their feet. Listen to John 13 and how truly selfless Jesus was. It was just before Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I'll be jumping down to verse 12. It goes on to say, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. That is a beautiful passage and one we all know very well. But something that caught my eye this time that I've missed in the past were the words, the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Thinking through this and studying further, I realized that we sometimes forget the really practical part of the, this verse for our own lives. And yes, we have heard countless sermons on the feet washing. But have we stopped to realize that Jesus loved them right to the end, even with a betrayer in the group? 
Jesus shows his selflessness in the hours that are the most difficult in anyone's life. The hour just before we know our doom. Maybe yours has been the evening before the final divorce hearing. Maybe someone else's last supper and dark hours were before open heart surgery or an organ transplant. Worrying if they would ever wake up again. For some, it may be the evening of their child's court trial who's facing life in prison. These are the hours that our heart literally bleeds from the outside. We can feel the overwhelming pain and agony of knowing what lies ahead. In our humanness, we often cower back. We sedate with a drug or alcohol to dull the pain. We become silent and shut all those who love us out because we can't bear to face them in this hour of suffering. Listen to how Jesus faced such a tough time in his own life. It's found again in John 13, verse 3 through 5. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus not only served from a standpoint of humility, Jesus not only served from a standpoint of humility, but he also served those who knew who he was and where he was going. I think this is key in our service and our walk with the Lord, no matter what we're facing. We must know that God our Father is above all things. And even though something bad had to happen to his son to fulfill the will of the Father, Jesus realized more than someone's betrayal and the loss of his friends that he lived in the authority in which God gave him. And his mission was to serve and save. We need to do the same, friends. No matter how we feel we are doing or if people are pleased with us or if we ever get it right, we need to realize more that our job is to solely glorify God no matter how strange it may seem or how difficult it may be. I can remember in my own life when I was wrestling in my mind over decisions in my ministry and what was I supposed to be doing, that I became more focused on myself than what God wanted most of all, and that was simply to be still and get to know him. One of my prayer partners had asked God point blank in their own quiet time what was going on with the ministry. God very clearly said, I'm taking her ministry in a new direction. Her heart is pure and she'll get it right. It was very simple, but some of the most important words I had ever heard from heaven. It has been what I return to when I want to worry more about everything going my way, or if God will be okay with me. God quickly reminds me, I will get this right. Shouldn't we all trust in the fact that God's will will be done in our lives no matter what? He will see to it. God knows we're made of dust. He knows we are frail and fragile. He knows that we skip, fall, and even fumble through our Christian walk at times. But our job is not to focus on our shortcomings, but to focus on his greatness. When we are always looking to ourselves for answers, we fail to miss the greatest part of the equation, Jesus. I had a friend tell me of how frustrated she was about not ever feeling like she was enough. When would she get it right? And when would this ridiculous struggle be over? I said, well, maybe you should start focusing on God and not what you want and what you're not. He will make you what he wants you to be and in his time and in his way. I was saying, you always have yourself on your mind. 
but she got it. Even though it can be a tough statement to swallow, she got it. When we finally get alone and get real, we often find that more times than not, we are always on our mind. God says, don't sweat it. You'll get it right. That's what I sent my son to earth for, to set everything right. So where are you today? Are you always on your mind? Are you struggling through to get ahead, to hear from God, to get healed? Could it be that you simply need to replace him with you? Would a simple mind shift off yourself toward God be all that you need? Why don't you take some time today and ask God to forgive you for making yourself first? And instead of you, put him in the first place. He will reward you in your diligence to seek him first. Matthew 6, reminds us that when we do, all these other things will be added unto ourself. Won't you take some time today and make God first and foremost in your life? I sure hope so.